Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. We've been talking about crime and poverty and un inequality in the United States and how bad it is. But there are other places around the world that are plagued by the same problem where you have rich people who are essentially predatory, who extract as much wealth as possible from everybody else. And then you have this massive inequality and then that tears apart social fabric and, and destroys social trust. And then you have crime. And, and, and I mean, it's just it's it's being repeated all over the world. And, and now, you know, right off our coast, one of the countries that is, uh, has been chronically going through this kind of a problem, when I interviewed the former prime minister of Haiti on this program, I believe I pointed out to him that uh, I, I, our organization, with this German organization I was working with, tried to start a project with Haiti, and the, the government minister that we were dealing with wouldn't, wouldn't, would not work with us unless we paid him a bribe. I mean, it was, this is how terrible it was there. And yet, this is in large part a creation, the problems there are in large part a creation of the United States. And I didn't e even know now, and, and Greg Pallas is with us, our old buddy, the investigative journalist, the author of uh, How Trump Stole 2020, gregpallas.com, of course, his website, Greg underscore Pallas on Twitter. Uh, Greg, I didn't know until I read your piece, and I'm, I'm sure somebody has mentioned it somewhere, that George W. Bush got us, dragged us into another, uh, what would you call it, opportunistic, uh, imperialistic, uh, whatever, involvement well, in Haiti. It's a coup d'etat. I mean, he wasn't satisfied with stealing his own election. So in 2004, Haiti, after the U.S. backed a dictatorship for 28 years, Baby Doc and Papa Doc Duvalier, we backed a dictatorship. They finally elected a president, the Catholic priest Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And um, then we fomented. Then we fomented a, a group of, of characters, a gang called, which called themselves the cannibals, and I guess that the Bush's PR people said, no, give yourself another name. So they changed the name from cannibals to the National Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Haiti. Bush sent in 1,000 Marines and went to the office of President Aristide and said, you're going. You're, you know, you're out. Um, so, again, you know, he, he was stealing the, his second election in the U.S., so he decided to steal Haiti's while he was at it with 1,000 Marines. And, and by the way... Um, 
Aristide, when the Marines broke into his office, was reading a book called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Seriously, uh, your he book? Ask me to re- <laughs> yeah, so I know that because he asked me to, if, he could, if I could send him another copy because the Marines took it from him. Oh, my God. So I'm not kidding. Is he still and alive? So he, uh, was, oh, indeed. He just returned uh, this weekend back to Haiti. He's in his 90s. He was recovering from COVID in Cuba. And so what happened was, besides after the thousand Marines were sent in and we replaced him with, you know, another puppet, he ultimately came back. Well, anyway, go right ahead if you have other questions about. Well, no, uh, our, my, our my recollection is, is that President Aristide was a, uh, what today we would call a social democrat or democratic socialist, somebody who believed in yep. democracy, but also believed that you have to have a strong social safety net in order to have a society work. And similarly to the, con- you know, it wasn't the Contras, it was the uh, Sandinistas in Central America who were ending up, you know, ultimately having to align themselves with Cuba and the Soviet Union because we were just trashing them who were saying, you know, we, we're, Embargoes, we're, yes. yeah, we're, we're all in favor of democracy. We just want to have a strong social safety net. And the Reagan administration and, and others said, but specifically Ronald Reagan said, you know, strong social safety net is that's socialism. That's communism. You can't have that. I mean, you know, it's like the record that he made for the AMA back in the 1960s, you know, about Medicare saying someday we'll look back and remember when men were free. But I also yes, recall well, that Aristide lived far more humbly than his predecessors, than, than the Duvaliers, and made a point of that, right. that, that he was that he put they, into place yeah. a lot of very positive social changes in Haiti. What happened to those? Well, what happened is the U.S. imposed an embargo because unlike the uh, Duvaliers, which we kept in power, he didn't steal billions. He lived extremely, he lived poor. He was very humble. But the nation was busted, especially because it was devastated. Eighty percent of the foreign aid was looted by the Duvaliers. The U.S. cut off aid, so he turned to Venezuela, which gave uh, the nation over $2 billion plus low-cost oil in their program created by Hugo Chavez called Petrocarib. Now, the current, the lately deceased president, uh, Moises, who was uh, killed, murdered last week, or a week and a half ago, he looted some of that money brought in by Venezuela, according to the Haitian Supreme Court, one of the few institutions which is still honest and functioning. Hmm. You know, we have to understand there's a long history here. I mean, this, and then they had the earthquake of 2010. We were supposed to bail them out. Instead, we created, Obama created something called the Bush, Clinton, Haitian Relief Fund. Uh, you can tell by, the, by just the name that it's a grifter operation, which tried to set up some beach resorts for, you know, white tourists, but nothing for the Haitians. You have to understand that today, 67% of the people of Haiti, 67% earn $2 a day or less. Whoa. And this tragedy has a long history. And, and by the way, it didn't help that, you know, in 1791, Toussaint Louverture led the first successful mass slave uprising. That led to the, in the creation of Haiti. Yeah. yeah, in the Americas. And what happened was the um, French government, this is the first time that we had reparations for slavery. What it was was the slaves in Haiti were required to pay $21 billion in payments to the French slaveholders, to the French government and the slaveholders, for the loss of their so-called property, that is, the humans, the citizens of Haiti. And that continued through 1947. So literally, they were paying 
the slaves are paying, the former enslaved people are paying their slaveholders in France. That finally came to an end, but the, not the economic slavery. That was replaced by another form of economic slavery called the IMF, which said since Haiti's poor, what they need to do is impose an austerity program and privatize all their industries, you know, water, electricity, et cetera, so there's no water or electricity. Um, so this is a nation we have brutalized. When I say, you know, well, not you and me, Tom, and not your listeners, but, you know, um, you well, know. We've all been participants American in the system that has, that has yeah. brutalized them. I mean, you know, and, that's, and, that, a, and that gives us, I think, an obligation to do or say something about it. You know, the Aristide part of the history of Haiti, I knew at the time. I mean, you know, I was alive and paying attention to the media, but was not right. top of mind for me recently. I didn't realize that you knew Jean-Baptiste Aristide, if I'm saying it right. Yeah, Jean-Baptiste Aristide. And he was taken off to a French colony in Africa, and he was able to get away and return, get reelected. You know, it's, it's interesting. The U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, this guy, Moise, and by the way, no one in Haiti, not me, and no one in Haiti is thrilled about the idea that their president was gunned down. Right. But the truth is, he was a rump president. He, his office, term in office, ended last year. Right. And he refused to leave he office. A boy, he pulled a now, Trump. Yeah. yeah. And what happened was, is that the U.S. State Department backed him in holding on to office. Yeah. This guy who was, in fact, uh, not only was he stealing the, the aid money given by Venezuela, but he was using some of that money to pay off gangs. The place is controlled by the G9, which means the nine gangs. And he was paying the nine gangs to beat up anti-government demonstrators. Gun some down. Craig, I understand that Haiti is going to be having elections soon. We're almost out of time here, by the way. Is there another Aristide, another Democratic Socialist who has the possibility of winning that election and putting that country back together and, and hopefully without the United States interfering again? Oh, there are really good activists who are following. You know, Aristide was a liberation theologist, and there right. are the poverty priests there still there who are working hard and putting their lives on the line. Whether they stand a chance or they, we are going to continue to back governments which are themselves backed by gangs, literally the nine gangs, that's the real issue. Whether Haiti will ever be allowed to be free, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a tragedy. And another example, I mean, our involvement in Iraq, our involvement in, in Iran, our involvement in Haiti, our involvement in, I mean, you just pick a country, right? It's Central America. Greg Pallast, gregpallast.com, the website. Great, great op-ed that Greg put together with a whole timeline of Haiti. You can check it out. Greg, thanks a lot. It's great talking with you. You're very welcome, Tom. Bye. Thank you. Greg Pallast, a former BBC reporter and with The Guardian. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Grace in Neighborville, Illinois. Hey, Grace, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. I'm calling about Haiti. I'm on the board of a children's home there. Mm -hmm. And people are asking me, what's it like for the people in Haiti? Well, I don't know. I'm not there, but our founder is there 24-7. And he received a letter, an awesome letter, from a priest who had started two hospitals there. What I'd like to do is send you that letter, and maybe you would want to read sections that really tells what the people are going through. And you don't get on the news media. 
And if I could email that to you, you might want, I've highlighted key sections and you can see if you think your people will be, your re, uh, listeners will be interested and just read those parts. And if not, just discard it. Yeah, my email address is on TomHartman.com. Just be sure that there are no political words in the email because yeah. the spam filter will catch those and, and it'll just go right to spam. Okay, real good. I'll yeah. get it on its way. I'll, okay. I'll check it. Good thank luck, you so Grace. much. Yeah. Okay, thanks, thank thanks you. Thanks a lot for the Bye. call. Uh, Nate noticed this this morning on a website that he was visiting. Two headlines side by side, right? Two absolutely side by side headlines. And I think that this demonstrates the irony of the moment that we're in. The one headline is Biden calls Cuba a failed state and communism a failed system. Okay, well, you know, as a consequence of our embargo, certainly Cuba is in a crisis right now. And, and you know, we can, we can have opinions about the communist government in Cuba and, you know, all those kind of things. But, but anyhow, so that stands. Biden calls Cuba a failed state and communism a failed system. The headline right next to it, is girl seven, seven years old, sells lemonade to pay for her own brain surgery. Seriously, this is where we're at? This is where we're at? That's amazing. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom, thank you for taking my call. I just have a quick question pertaining HR1, mm -hmm. uh, the voting rights bill. Do you know if there's any language in the bill that criminalizes suppression of the vote the way they are doing in all of these states? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Tom. You know, I don't know if the bill specifically criminalizes suppressing the vote. What a, uh, although I suppose, no. It basically, it says federal law supersedes state law. The state law can't be enforced if it does this or this or this. And, you know, which is very much like what the Voting Rights Act said. And, you know, arguably then, you know, with that law in place, if some state tried to say, okay, count the jelly beans in the jar or, you know, whatever little uh, game they're going to play, uh, you know, this week, there could be criminal penalties. But, you know, I'm not sure. Anyhow, I'll be right back. Stick around. Reading today from Guns for Hire, how the CIA and U.S. Army recruit mercenaries for white Rhodesia. In Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, 270,000 white settlers, mostly immigrated since World War II, controlled the government and economy, ruling over the 7 million black Africans. The Zimbabweans cannot vote. They have been forced off the bulk of the arable land, and they have no democratic rights whatsoever. All labor performance in Zimbabwe is black labor, and it is intensely exploited, often at less than subsistence wages. Zimbabweans have been fighting European invaders since the early 17th century. Since the 1890s, they have been directly ruled by Europeans, at first in the form of a private British corporation, the British South Africa Company. Since 1923, direct political rule has been in the hands of the white settlers, currently led by Ian Smith and his fascist Rhodesian Front Party. It's important to note that the white settlers were originally given this direct local power as a, quote, self-governing colony of the British government, thereby creating a master-caretaker relationship. During these past 80-odd years, Western imperialism, the multinational corporations of the United States, Britain, and South Africa, 
has extracted huge profits from the exploited and oppressed Zimbabwean population via the subsidiaries of the Anglo-Americans, Lonro, Amax, AMAX, Union Carbide, Mobile, ITT, and other corporations. They fully intend to continue doing so as long as they can. The white settler minority has been rewarded for their violent subjugation of the Zimbabwean people with perhaps the highest national standard of living in the world. Sir Roy Walensky, the former prime minister of the Central African Federation, which included what is now Rhodesia, once said, This man Smith has an appeal. It's the appeal of an easy life. For $6,000 a year, you can have five servants, a swimming pool, and a lot. During the early 1960s, however, the Zimbabwean nationalist forces under the leadership of the Zimbabwe African National Union, ZANU, evolved the strategy of guerrilla war to liberate their people and land. It is proving to be very successful. There are 20,000 guerrillas in base camps in Tanzania and Mozambique, over 3,000 in Zimbabwe itself, and this number is continually rising. In a meeting between Stephen Solars, a U.S. congressman, and the ZANU guerrilla leaders, they were reported to reject the possibility of enlisting the assistance of Cuban or other foreign troops, declaring that if we cannot liberate ourselves, we do not deserve to be liberated. Despite Western propaganda to the effect that the U.S. and British only wish to avoid a bloodshed in Rhodesia, don't forget the Zimbabweans have been bleeding for almost a century, their real fear is that the liberation struggle will win. With this victory in sight, it is not surprising that the counterattack by the Smith regime has become more vicious and brutal. Actually, this must have been published pre-1980, because this is when Smith was still in power in Rhodesia. More than 250,000 rural Zimbabweans have been forced into concentration camps. Terrorist raids have been conducted against Zimbabwean refugees in Mozambique. Dusk-to-dawn shoot-on-sight curfews have been instituted and enforced in the border areas. And escalating counterinsurgency attacks have been launched against the military arm of the liberation struggle, the Zimbabwean People's Army, ZIPA. It is crucial for Westerners to understand that the Smith regime has not stood alone in this barbaric campaign. This pamphlet documents the critically important element in U.S. imperialism's support for the Smith regime, white mercenary reinforcements for the fascist Rhodesian, quote, security forces. This flow of U.S. mercenaries to prop up white Rhodesia is an important, though secret, part of U.S. imperialism's strategy for Africa. The U.S. has massive investments in southern Africa. Zimbabwe alone supplies the bulk of high-grade chrome ore used in the U.S. for jet engines and other advanced technological items. Coal, copper, and other minerals are ripped out of Zimbabwe for U.S. industry. Mobile oil, Texaco, Hertz Rent-A-Cars, Holiday Inns, and many other U.S. corporations operate illegally in Rhodesia through foreign subsidiaries. More important still is South Africa, the fortress of U.S. interests in Africa, where $1.5 billion is invested by GM, IBM, Ford, and other giant multinational corporations. The liberation of Zimbabwe would, for the first time, penetrate the buffer zone of satellite countries protecting the borders of South Africa. South African guerrilla fighters, who are already training by the thousands in camps in Tanzania and Zambia, would have direct access to re-enter their land and accelerate the liberation struggle. Knowing that the stakes are high, U.S. imperialism has worked to strengthen the white supremacist outposts in Africa, although at times this had to be done covertly. In 1970, the Nixon White House approved Henry Kissinger's Operation Tar Baby strategy, based on option two of the secret national study, security study memorandum number 39. This strategy essentially called for covert military assistance, including direct exchanges, so the South African troops could be trained in the U.S. in specialized tactics and weapons. This would be done while the U.S. tried to convince Africans that it was on their side. This is from the, the pamphlet number 39, that... Uh, 
Kissinger memorandum. We would maintain public opposition to racial oppression, but relax political isolation and economic restrictions without openly taking a position undermining the United Kingdom and the UN on Rhodesia. We would be more flexible in our attitudes for the Smith regime. And it goes on from there. Guns for hire. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Just a year or so ago, I had, I'm not sure if I'd never heard of critical race theory, but I certainly had really no serious idea exactly what it was. I'm not an academic. I think most people, I think the vast majority of Americans outside of academia were unaware of this phrase, uh, critical race theory, or it's now popular acronym CRT, which I always thought stood for cathode ray tube, but that's, you know, my electronics background. But it turns out that this hysteria around critical race theory, which is badly misguided, badly misplaced, actually has an origin. There is an origin story to the hysteria. And Judd Lagum has done some really great research into this for his newsletter, popular.info, that you can check out at popular.info. And you can tweet him at, at Judd Lagum, L-E-G-U-M. And Judd, welcome back to the program. Tell us about this, uh, this obscure foundation that has basically been driving the train on creating this hysteria. Yeah, I think like you, I was interested in as to why this had become such a central political topic. In fact, I just saw right before I was coming on the air with you, there was a study by Media Matters that said critical race theory was mentioned over 900 times in the month of June on Fox News, which is you know 30 plus times per day. So it's just constantly being discussed. So I started by just looking at all of the different organizations that are 
pushing negative information about critical race theory and then started digging into the donors behind it. And a lot of times you can't find out that information, but if they get the donation from a private foundation, which a lot of very wealthy people use to distribute their money, that does have to be disclosed. So looked at all that information, looked at all the foundations that were funneling money into these organizations that are lifting up uh, critical race theory as a central political issue. And one foundation stuck out as a period one over and over again, and two with very large sums uh, of money to these groups, and that was the Thomas W. Smith Foundation, and, and, which I'd never heard of, and I don't think has a huge profile. But I, I started digging into that. Yeah, and and Thomas W. Smith is an actual real guy. He's still alive. He's still around. But but it's not, he, and and he has endowed the foundation. But this has not been his personal handiwork. He's he's got a guy working for him who's quite well paid, who's been uh, pushing this. Yeah. What you can do when you look at these private foundation files, you can see how exactly how they spend their money. And you can also see who's spending their time on it. And what that shows is that although Thomas W. Smith is the president, the director and the person who's getting paid almost three hundred thousand dollars a year to run this is a guy named James Pearson. And he has a very long history. He writes a lot. He never really discloses his role with this foundation, but he writes a lot about how philanthropists should spend their money, all these cultural issues. And it becomes very clear that he's actually not that concerned about critical race theory, mostly because it's not something that's being taught in K through 12 schools. I learned it. I actually was familiar with it, but only because I learned about it in law school uh, years ago. Hmm. But he does have very, uh, you know, you could call them traditional, you could call them outdated views about the role of race and diversity in our culture. He doesn't think there should be women's studies or black studies or LGBTQ studies in universities. He doesn't think even private foundations should undertake any efforts to try to ameliorate racial inequality or economic inequality you know and it just it's very very conservative very traditional views and to me it started to really clarify what this push is all about it's not so much about critical race theory but it's about dressing up these views that are are pretty out of fashion in a new verbiage and, and using that to drive uh, opposition. If I'm remembering the origin of the phrase, uh, a, a red herring is a fish that has been out long enough that it has started to get stinky and rotty, and you drag that across a path to disrupt the ability of, of dogs or animals to, to track things. Um, this seems to me like a classic red herring. Yes, I, and I think it also shows the, the amount of money behind this. And just to be clear, we found quite a bit of money. It was over almost $13 million over a period of, we had to look at 2017 to 2019 because there's a delay in when this mm -hmm. money is reported. We'll find out about 2020 towards the end of 2021. But a lot of the money we don't even, there's probably much more money behind it because you have a whole host of organizations that were created last year, this year, that are fully devoted just to uh, attacking critical race theory and 
you know, those, those that money, we don't know where they're getting their money, but it's they're getting from somewhere. And my guess is uh, a lot of them are probably getting money from the same place. Yeah. And just and just to be very clear, you know, critical race theory, for example, explains why after World War Two, my dad could go to college and buy a house on the GI Bill. But the people that he enlisted with who were black couldn't, uh, you know, back yeah, and it's, yeah, it's about, for example, it's about. Yeah, it's about investigating why there still is persistent inequality along racial lines. And it's taught in law schools because it primarily focuses on how different legal decisions and legal structures really embed that disparity. So a very classic example is why, you know, and they brought this down somewhat, but it's still, I think, 18 to 1, there's so much of a higher penalties for crack cocaine than powder cocaine. Right. Even yeah, though it's exactly. the same drug. Because it was more by, more popular in the black community than the white community. Yeah. And and, and exactly. vice versa. So that's, so, so that's, so John, that's, that's I, what critical race theory is. You yeah. know, as an attorney, you, you know how these uh, right-wing foundations get things before the Supreme Court. They'll, they'll, uh, yeah. uh, you know, they'll do dozens and dozens of various lawsuits, and, and they'll try to find the absolute perfect litigant complainant um, you know, who's, uh, you know, let's find Mr. Heller, right? The guy in Washington, D.C., yep. who actually the one guy in D.C. who legitimately probably should have had a gun. And let's put him in front of the yep. Supreme Court for the for the gun decision. And so it appears to me that what you have discovered is one little bud, uh, you know, one little mushroom sticking up out of the earth of probably what are dozens, if not hundreds of tests, of, of testing different things to see if they can be made to go viral that can be used to, you know, further rigidify the racial hierarchy in the United States or further damage, uh, quote, the left uh, and, and serve yeah. as a rallying point for, for hardcore right-wingers, particularly the white supremacists among us. Is that, is that an accurate guesstimate of what's going on here? I, I think that gets at it. And to me, I think the reason why we've seen this is really a, a 2021 phenomenon, you know, late 2020 into 2021. And I think it's really a, a counter to the response that we saw to the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. where people started taking these racial disparities more seriously and people started taking action and corporations wanted to take action and governments wanted to take action to try to address some of these issues you know not just issues about police violence but but all sorts of issues of disparities across the board and they weren't having much luck you know just demonizing black lives matter right the 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 phrase black lives matter kind of makes sense to most people not everybody, but but most people, and it was getting more popular. So I really think that's kind of what pushed this to the fore, is it's a way to combat that without it without actually having to address the core issues. And then what I found mind-boggling about your report over at popular.info today, we're talking to Judd Legum and uh, 
Tesnim Zakuria was your co-author with this. Yeah, that's my research. Yeah, that's my research assistant. Yeah. yeah, she did a great work on this. Yeah, uh, is that it wasn't just the Thomas W. Smith Foundation that they're pouring money into other foundations that are also promoting this whole critical race theory hysteria. And the list, I mean, the Heritage Foundation, ALEC, the American Ideas Institute, the Center for American Greatness, the Claremont Institute, the Derry Collar Foundation, the Federalist, the Heterodox Academy, the Independent Women's Forum, Judicial Watch, State Policy Network, uh, Turning Point, National Review, Prager University, the Clear Foundation. I, it, I mean, it goes on for another page. This yeah. is a massive right-wing infrastructure to, to basically promote, you know, ideas, uh, if you want to call them that. Is there anything like this on the left? I don't think so. Not on this scale. And what's also interesting about it is it, it spans all sorts of types of organizations. You have legal organizations that are filing lawsuits. You have these you know, public policy think tanks that are holding events. You have activist groups that are rallying people, youth groups uh, that are you know, promoting social media optimized memes uh, about this issue. We're talking to Judd Legum, and Judd Legum has done some really great research into this for his newsletter, popular.info. Check out popular.info, and you can tweet him at, at Judd Legum. Thank you for the call, and thanks for the comments that you made. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> we, we have to live with it, I suppose, to a certain point which is a really sad state of affairs. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Picking up your phone calls. And, uh, oh, I, I did want to just flag one, uh, a couple of things. Okay, just keep you up to date with what's going on in the news. You probably caught that uh, Dr. Fauci called Rand Paul a liar to his face which was really sweet. He said, Senator Paul, I have never lied before. First, uh, Paul accused him of lying. He said, I have never lied before Congress and I do not retract my previous statement. And Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. And quite frankly, and I, I wanna say that, that officially, you do not know what you are talking about. And then Paul started pushing another lie and Fauci replies, I resent that lie that you are now propagating. I totally resent that. And if anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. So, <laughs> God bless uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, number one. And another reason why, you know, the rights and the Republicans are all hysterical and going after him. The second, and I think this is fascinating, we're, we're trying to book, uh, in fact, I think maybe we have booked Carol Leonig and, and Phil Rucker for the show about their new book, I Alone Can Fix It, uh, which we just got a copy of today. But there's, in this book, uh, they point out that there is a discrepancy between the official timeline of events on January 6th that was put out by the Pentagon, by Trump's Pentagon. Keep in mind, Trump fired a bunch of Pentagon people right after he lost the election and replaced them with toadies. So there was an acting Secretary of Defense and an acting Secretary of the Army and an act, I mean, all these positions were acting. And the book exposes these discrepancies. You know, this, this is uh, uh, pretty amazing. The book says, quote, Despite Milley recommending that the Pentagon call up neighboring National Guard units immediately, Ryan McCarthy, this is the, you know, the guy that Trump had put in, Ryan McCarthy hadn't got around to it until more than two and a half hours after the Capitol was breached. McCarthy was serving as the acting 
Secretary of the Army at the time. And the Department of Defense also admitted from their timeline, omitted from their timeline, a 4.39 p.m. call between acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller. He was the guy who wrote the memo saying, you may not, you know, to the National Guard, you may not provide any, all these different types of assistance to the Capitol Police. And White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, along with Mitch McConnell, that doesn't appear in the Pentagon timeline. And this raises some really significant questions that, uh, What's the old saying? Inquiring minds want to know what the heck is going on with this. So our crazy alert for the day, <laughs> the uh, uh, social media is uh, scratching their heads. This is from the Irish Times over in Ireland. The, the headline, they, they can't not have noticed. Why does Jeff Bezos' rocket look like that? And then, you know, which also raises the question, why does the Amazon logo look like that? What is it about Jeff Bezos and these, well, they call it anthropomorphic, which is, you know, taking something that's not human and giving it human qualities, in this case, the rocket. And, and you know what I'm talking about. I need not say it, but um, the world is noticing, uh, Jeff, and it's uh, seeming very strange. And anyhow, picking up your phone calls. Uh, here, uh, Antonio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Antonio, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thank you so much. I'm 28 years old. I'm in North Carolina. Uh, actually, I want to provide a little bit of pushback against something that you said that involves both climate change and environmental racism. A couple of weeks ago, yeah, I said when? one of your callers... Oh, I'm a couple of weeks ago. Okay, keep, keep going. One of your callers was talking about the danger that sea level rise poses to coastal infrastructure. First, I want to say it's not climate doomism to recognize that some of the projections from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are in fact catastrophic. I agree. Uh, I agree. We've got, we are in the midst of, a, of an extinction. We are in the midst of a crisis. It's getting worse every day. The world is not doing anything close to what they need to do about it. This leaked IPCC report is absolutely almost on the edge of panic. I'm very concerned about it. A lot of people I know are very concerned about it. I know I had a woman call in a couple of weeks ago who was, you know, who had essentially told Joyce that she was suicidal and, and just started, you know, crying on the air. And I was trying to calm her down. And I probably went way too far in trying to just keep her from going off the edge. But that one call notwithstanding, I am absolutely with you, Antonio. We need to do something about this. We need to do something now. This is a crisis. Thank you very much for the call. Paul in Spooner, Wisconsin. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, here's the deal. I am on the county board in my county up here in northern Wisconsin, and there was some stimulus money that had gone to our county recently to go into broadband, expand mm -hmm. broadband into our rural county. Well, what happens is, according to get this money, you have, it's $3.5 million. There has to be a three-way partnership. It has to be between the government, government agency, as well as a private partner, which would be the local company that provides Internet service, which there's several within our county. So, without any warning, it was on the agenda about a week ago in our county board meeting. We learned about the program. We learned that this company, Mosaic, out of Race Lake, Wisconsin, wants to expand their fiber optics line into our county, and it would cover about two townships and would cover roughly 1,000 homes, mm -hmm. 1,000 properties. I'm not even going to say homes because they're not resort industry and, and vacation properties up here. Mm -hmm. 
Paul, you're total fading in and dollars. out. I don't know if you can do anything about that. But. Okay. Okay. The total dollars is $3.5 million. What they've done is they've asked us to put this towards this project, and it's going to affect roughly 1,000 homes. Right. Now, the only one that's going to get a profit out of this is the local Internet company because they're going to be able to get new customers. Not necessarily everybody's going to hook into it, though. Right. But if you figure out what, what we're spending here, we're spending roughly $35,000 per home for that company to come in and put fiber optics for roughly 1,000 people. That's incredible. They're never going to get there. It's amazing. I mean, I, we, we, is, we lived in rural Vermont, you know, way up, way out in the woods for about five years. And to get electric power back to our house or back to a house like ours was about $10,000 a mile. I'm just blown away that it would be $34,000 to bring broadband to a house. Right. The other thing is, is we have other companies within the county. And I said, why don't we put our money to where we get more bang for the buck for more population? Some of these cities that we have, we can get them. And the response was the carrier in those cities doesn't want to participate in the plan. So in other words, we're at the mercy with this free money. Basically, it's free money given to you to say, here's three and a half million, spend it on fiber right. optics. Because, because somebody is so in love with public-private partnerships as opposed to just letting a, a municipality or a county just do its own thing like Chattanooga did. That's my statement. And I say, I want, why don't we just look into this and put the money towards that? And I was told that our legislature in Wisconsin has passed laws to prohibit that from happening. Oh, God. I'm not surprised. You've got Republicans who control both the House and Senate in Wisconsin, so of it makes course. perfect sense. But that's it was so sad to have to. It was so sad to have to vote on that because I knew it was such a waste. It's a huge amount, and we're really we didn't think this through. And yeah. it all—it's the stimulus money that came to us, and this, we have to do something with it, or you lose it. Yeah, and this is out of the stimulus bill from June. You're talking the the big, uh, yeah. yeah, the American Rescue Act, yes. I think it's called. Yeah. Yes, it has to go into broadband or sewer systems and that kind of stuff. And we don't because we're a county, we don't have a sewer system. Yeah, it's Amazing. all septic sick. Amazing. Thank you uh, for sharing the story with us, Paul. It's 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 grim, but it just kind of adds to the argument. And and uh, you know, hopefully the Biden administration will quickly get you know an, another Democrat on the FCC and appoint somebody as chair and and revisit the some of these uh, like the net neutrality rules and things like that because we really need to fix this. Paul, thank you again. It's, it's great to hear from you, Erica in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Erica, what's up on hey, your Tom. on your end? What's on your mind? Uh, as a history major, I was just sick to hear that the uh, Texas legislature is going to sanitize, I guess, uh, white supremacy, the Klan. KKK. Specifically. Yeah, the, yeah, that they're going to, you know, do away with teaching about the farm workers and women's suffrage. I wasn't sure if you're aware how much Texas influences the school books that are written for the entire nation because they buy such volume. They are the only ago, state that really tightly, an entire statewide basis, regulates school books like that, and therefore they define the standards for school books all across the country. Yep. A few years ago when they decided that uh, Thomas Jefferson was a big old lefty and much reduced his footprint in the Texas history books, and I'm sure that will be afoot now, too, so that this will impact our children in, in every jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Erica. And this is this goes beyond the Texas School Board 
or the statewide school board or whatever they call that group that oversees the books, because this is the actual legislature saying, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're actually going to pass laws like this. It's crazy. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Erica. That was an important one, and I appreciate that. By the way, by way of also making corrections, earlier I had quoted a, uh, a quote to Julio when we were debating about vaccines and passports and things. I had quoted France's President Emmanuel Macron as saying that now you guys get to stay home. Sue, let me know that that quote, which has been all over the Internet, is apparently a fake quote. So just so you know, you know, if you're going to repeat it or somebody like that, you know, it's, it's apparently... Uh, not real. Diane in Little Rock, Arkansas. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind? Okay, let me explain something about the schools in suburban Little Rock where I've been substituting for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. Number one, and this is a middle class, mostly white districts. Number one, most of the teachers have master's degrees. Number two, because of the use of Chromebooks, textbooks are not ordered as much or rarely used. That's number two. Number three, in seven years, I have never seen a legislature sit in on a classroom. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Uh, very rarely, maybe one time, have I seen a principal in a classroom. Pretty much the teachers are highly educated, highly open-minded, and that's what they're teaching. I've never seen a parent in the classroom. The teachers are pretty much on their own when teaching. So it doesn't matter what they pass because they have no idea what the teachers are teaching. And I always say to myself, the students are very open-minded and they are getting a liberal education in spite of what people think. Yeah. So but here's, here's the problem. Don't be worried about it. Here's the problem, and, and this is actually happening. I mean, I, my personal experience was, you know, when I've told the story before, when, my, when my, one of my kids was seven years old and we had just moved to Atlanta, and I said, you know, he came home from school, and I said, what did you learn in school today? And he was like, uh, we learned about the war of northern aggression. <laughs> and, you know, had I been like, you know, super flipped out or an activist, I would have been calling the school going, the what? But, you know, what happens when these kids come home from school and start talking about Martin Luther King or Susan B. Anthony and their parents know that that's banned, those teachers are going to, I mean, hell is going to rain down on them. Excuse me, but parents don't care. If they were to put, they'd never put uh, cameras in the classroom. Yeah. You know why? Because most of the students do not want an education. It's a total uproar. Yeah. Uh, i tell you one thing. I was pleasantly surprised. I put a DVD in a history class, and I thought, wow, this is very graphic on slavery. And I looked, and I go, who made this history channel? So huh. that's what the teachers are presenting to the students. Parents don't show up parents' night. Yeah. Yeah. Most parents I, are too busy working, I, trying to make a, a living, and I just it, do I not. I get it. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. But just wait until it shows up on Tucker Carlson's show. And it will. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Our book today in the Tom Harvin Book Club is The Black Panthers, Portraits from an Unfinished Revolution, edited by uh, Briasha and Yohuro Williams. This is from Chapter 1, In Defense of Self-Defense, Pathways to the Black Panther Party. People joined the Black Panther Party for many different reasons. The moment of politicization was different for everyone, but a few were commonly shared, including the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the 1965 Watts Urban Rebellion. A more general sense of frustration and alienation compelled others to join the Panthers' ranks. The party exerted enormous pull on the imagination of the members, especially those who had experienced police brutality. In the rebellious spirit of the times, the party's bold stance on self-defense resonated with those seeking fresh alternatives for achieving social justice and black liberation. Party members expressed a deep appreciation for other aspects of the Panthers program, including its community service programs, which grew out of a genuine love for the people. My neighborhood friend, a sister that I've known since I was about 11 years old, said, Claudia, I want you to go with me. We're going to go and hear these Panthers speak at PS 92 which was an elementary school in our community. I said, okay, I'll go, I'm down. I listened to these brothers speak and I heard the pitch. I saw the determination and I saw the compassion. I thought, wow, this is the feeling that I used to get when I went into clubs and popped my fingers and got on the dance floor. It was the same feeling, except it was bigger for me now. It was bigger than me. It was full of love of the people. No longer did we have to argue and fight about what are you looking at me like that for? Or don't step on my sneaker, or this is my block. Now we really had something to fight for. We had a people to fight for. This is bigger than any gang or club. We had a goal. We had something to look forward to, which was the betterment of black people. It was most definitely something that I was searching for, but I didn't yet know that I was searching. I didn't find it. It fell on me. That was the first meeting. That's what actually started the wheels in my mind for me to become political. I was rank and file. I did a lot of things. The easiest way to say it is just to imagine worker bees. You got one queen, everyone else works. Rank and file, those were the worker bees. We did it all. The one thing I enjoyed the most was teaching the political education classes on 7th Avenue in front of the Harlem office. That was the most fruitful. But anything I did, it was for the love of the people. Wherever I was, wherever I was sent, 
or whatever I had to do. It didn't matter anymore because it was for the love of the people. We were trying to get the word out. If I had to sell 125 papers in a, in a day and I got close to that goal, then I did a good job. I was originally from Queens and came out of the Corona branch of the Black Panther Party. When the Panther 21 were arrested and went to jail, in order to keep those offices open and functioning, Panthers were sent all over the city to Harlem. I was one of the Panthers that ended up in the Harlem branch. That's how I got to be there on Wednesday nights to give the PE classes, the political education classes. I was extremely nervous the first time, but once I found my voice, then it went like clockwork. A lot of the people in the community who were just walking by were like, well, let me stop and see what this little girl is talking about, because I was indeed a little girl at that time. We started off every PE class with a 10-point program, and we ended every PE class with, okay, let me hear from you guys. What do you want to see different in your community? And how are you living? Then we would get the feedback, and then we would know how to concentrate our efforts. Rent strikes were crazy, because if you had to live like that, why should you pay rent? We did clothing drives. We did food drives. We did, of course, the breakfast program. There were a lot of other things that happened, and they might have been more meaningful, but those PE classes stayed with me. We were outside on the street in front of the office. When you were giving a class or you were having a talk inside the office and there were only Panthers around you, the feeling was just different than outside on the street. The Panthers knew what you were doing because they were Panthers and they were doing the same thing. Outside, there were constant questions and answers with the people. You had to give yourself up when you were outside in that crowd. You never knew who was going to say, we don't care about that, we don't care about you, you need to go away. There were a lot of people that just did not know where we were coming from and were afraid that if they were seen in the office or if they were seen asking questions, that they'd get reprisals, that they'd end up getting hurt. They were afraid. Things went so fast. Time seems to accelerate when you're always looking over your shoulder. At this time, it was all-out war against the Panthers, and brothers are being shot down in the street or set up or going to jail for years. We have brothers in jail since that time, 40, 41 years. We've had brothers that we've lost on the inside that we can't let the world forget. The government said, okay, we're going to lock them up and throw away the key and no one will ever care. But it's not true. We want them out. We want freedom for all political prisoners. We don't want any more of them to die on the inside. That's the biggest injustice. There were times when our cadre consisted of almost nothing but women. And that was when the brothers were locked up or had to go underground. I remember being on a front line against a policeman on horseback and being six months pregnant. What we wanted was a simple street light, and we got the community out there and we blocked traffic. I didn't know whether I was going to be trampled, my baby killed, but I knew I had to be there. I was an active member of the party from 1968 to 1971, and in those few years, I aged 10, 15 years. We didn't have much time to be little girls. We went straight to womanhood. Talking about these things is bringing up all of these feelings, though I hadn't thought about or touched on them for a long time. It seems that as you get older and you look back on the things that you've done in your life, you say, oh my God, it could have gotten killed then. When you're young, fear is not really in your vocabulary. And once you look back, you wonder, why wasn't I afraid? We didn't have much time to be afraid. It was all about survival. The Black Panthers. And welcome back. Rick in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Rick, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Yeah, very interesting show, and I, and my point is, my big concern is that having people do masks again, even though it's good, and the fact that we have so many people will not get their vaccine shot, I do believe we are at a, on a fence, about to fall into a very, very dark water. I say, 
there's a somewhat of a history buff. We are very similar in many ways to the Civil War. Because I say the Civil War is about state rights. Slavery was the catalyst that brought to war. And our demise, and I'm sorry if I sound like I'm a, uh, an optimist, our demise will come because of this COVID. If we do not get this together, these little 30%, you say, well, that's not much. I say that it's going to be a major contributor if you have people close up and wear a mask again, even though that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So that's my rant. Yeah. No, I think you're right, Rick. My guess is that the way this is going to play out, and as I've been saying for months now, this is exactly what the Republican Party wants. It's why they are pushing these lies and this misinformation, is what will happen is you'll start to see red counties melting down. We're seeing this in Missouri right now, and we're seeing it in Florida, although there's not a lot of reporting. You're going to see red counties melting down, hospital officials freaking out. The result of that will be that people stop going to restaurants, stop going shopping, you know, just kind of go back into into withdrawal for a while. The result of that will be a slowing down of the economy. The result of that will be a, a drop in the stock market. The result of that will be that, you know, uh, the, the economy softens, and in the 2022 election, guess what? The Republicans are going to be coming and saying, ah, those Democrats, they brought you a terrible economy. See, vote for Republicans. And I think this is an electoral strategy, Rick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Death as a strategy. Unfortunately, you we are quite right. Even though I'm I also watching this meeting about the commission thing is kind of not going very well. And the lies they tell and the bizarreness, you think, am I watching a cartoon? Oh, you're talking about Jim Jordan and Jim Banks not getting put on the on the night. Yeah, the and it's commission. like they're... Like, look, kids have a temper tantrum. I can't get my way. So I'm going to be mad, and I'm going to make all kinds of accusations because I can't be wrong because yeah. I'm, I'm important. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, yeah, they're claiming that Nancy Pelosi is just doing, doing this because she has an anger problem and anger management. And, oh, really? uh, yeah, Jim really, Jordan, yeah. Gymnasium Jordan is saying that? Well, just different people are saying that, saying this, and one is backing the other one up, and they're claiming such thing as, well, how come Nancy Pelosi? How come she didn't see there was more police there, and then they had they had proper training there on the sixth? I mean, she's just so incompetent, and all they care about is themselves and promoting the Democratic Party, and they don't care about the people, which of course that was, is not that right was their lie. Stick. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, Rick, it's, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Jim Jordan and uh, Jim Banks are, are grandstanders. They're P.T. Barnums of the First Order. They are, they are appropriate heirs of the Trump uh, clown. And, uh, Rick, thank you for the call, and thanks for the comments that you made. Tom Hartman here with you and Maggie in Cold Springs, Springs Minnesota. Hey, Maggie, what's up? Hey, Tom. I really appreciate your show, and... Yeah, I just wanted to thank Erica for explaining so clearly that what goes in Texas is what goes for U.S. textbooks, is yes. what the publishers do. And also when you're talking about, you know, these look like pieces of a, of a bigger plan, and they really are. And I know that you've read and you share on the show at times, like Dark Money by Jane Meyer, um, Mayor, but I don't know if you've read, and I hope you have, Democracy in Chains. Oh, yeah. We've had Nancy on the program. Oh, awesome. Sorry I missed that. Oh, too. It was a couple um, of years ago when the book came out, but yeah, she's, oh, and it's a great okay. book. And she and does a really, deep dive into, uh, what's the guy's name? Who? Um, yeah, the, yeah, The Economist. Yeah. I forget, too. Yeah, in um, any case. Yeah, and it's really chilling what they did 
at Pinochet's request in Chile. Mm-hmm. And to, to this day, to this year, Chileans are marching in the streets and they can't change what has been made. The changes in the Constitution and such. And really, that's what will happen if they again get all three, both houses of Congress and the presidency. Oh, yeah. It'll be the it'll be the end, perhaps temporarily, but it'll be the end of American democracy. And by the way, James exactly. McGill, uh, James McGill Buchanan was the guy that Nancy uh, right. wrote about in Democracy and Chains. But yes. yeah, spot on. And, and I really consider that a prequel to Dark Money, even though it was written after. So yeah. yeah. But I have to say this: everything that's going on in our country, to the ill, is the Coke billionaire network. And I have to say, Charles Koch is a very skilled long-term strategist. Yes, and he is. He and right-wing wealthy men have been working this plan. Well, certainly they started as soon as Roosevelt, FDR, yeah. was able to get through um, legislation. For well, and it, and, it, and it went on steroids with the Powell memo. Maggie, uh, thank you. You said okay. it so well. I want to try and get one more caller in here in the, in the last minute that I have. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind? Hey, well, on the Texas textbooks, A, most schools can't just dump all their books and get brand new ones. So mm-hmm. B, that means loyal teams of Republicans are going to have to race in and black out all that nasty stuff that they're not allowed to have. <laughs> and that means redacted books. Children are going to see all this black area and go, hmm, what am I not allowed to see? It's sort of like Playboy, you know, and uh, what's missing here? <laughs> so I don't think that's going to go very well. So. Well, yeah, yeah, redacted material didn't work for for the Mueller report either. Yeah. People want to know. I think it's. I, I agree with you. I, I I think that there is a long term strategy here. I don't think that they're going to be sending uh, you know people into schools with felt pens. Uh, with sharpies, <laughs> but uh, I love the metaphor, the image uh, in my mind. That's a, yeah. a great one, Sandra. Thank you. That was that was brilliant. Um, and thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same same time, same place. And, uh, and a special thanks, by the way. I, I've, I, I've been made aware recently that uh, both some of our nonprofit stations with their fundraisers and some of our for-profit stations with their advertisers, that people have been reaching out to say, hey, I support the Tom Harbin program. Thank you for advertising on it or thank you for carrying it. And I want to thank you so much for doing that. It's, it really means a lot to us. So and get out there, get active, tag, you're in. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.